Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. Good health is a crown worn by the healthy that only the ill can see. Your health really is your wealth. Join us for the next hour as we explore disease and attaining and maintaining good health. This is Dischem Medical Monday, brought to you by Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome to Dischem Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you're all staying well and staying safe. And uh, we are very honored today to have with us Professor Adrian Purin from the NRCD. Prof, thank you very much for joining us and for giving up your time. We know you're very busy, especially um, in the current uh, epidemic, or, um, and we are grateful to have you. Thank you very much, Dean, and I really appreciate the uh, privilege to be on your station and to speak to your listeners. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. Much appreciated. Can you tell us, Prof, about just uh, um, uh, who you are, what you do at the NRCD, and maybe you can follow that up with uh, what the NRCD does in general and then specifically uh, during this uh, corona pandemic? Yes, thank you very much. I'm currently the acting um, executive director at the, the NICD, but my main role has uh, been um, as head of the Centre for HIV and STI. So I've focused a great deal around the surveillance of, of HIV and some of the diagnostics and some of the research activities, especially um, vaccine um, research in that particular centre. But the NICD has a, a long and um, illustrious history around um, disease surveillance and particular uh, virology. Um, in fact, it started off uh, as a um, private institute, uh, a privately uh, funded institution called the National Institute um, for Virology um, as a result of the um, polio campaigns. And it was then taken over by the government um, in 1976 and was then merged with the microbiology labs from the SAMR um, in 90, I think in, oh, about 10, 20 years ago, um, and then added onto it the epidemiology arm as well. So the NICD has been involved in a whole range of the surveillance activities as well as research um, activities around um, infectious um, diseases. Okay, great. And and uh, so tell me, what has the NICD been doing? We see the name being bandied around um, now and on the news and in all the media. Um, what is the NRCD doing um, regarding the corona pandemic? Are they collecting data? Um, are they looking at numbers? Are they providing strategies? What is your role in the current pandemic? Yeah, so the National Institute is really a key arm of the National Health with regard to communicable disease um, surveillance. And it has played a role in multiple outbreaks. Um, so measles, polio are good example. Listeriosis is another good example. And then flu um, as well. The last pandemic that we had with uh, H1N1, the NICD has really played a critical role, as well as providing not only a critical role within the country, but outside of the country. So, for example, the Ebola outbreaks have certainly provided support there as well. With regard to the corona um, or COVID-19 outbreak, the NIC displayed multiple and continues to play multiple roles. The main role really was to initially diagnose, set up the, the diagnostic test for um, coronavirus and then roll that out. But as you can see, there'll be, be multiple um, 
um, laboratories that are now able to perform the diagnostics, but that was one of the initial roles that it plays. And then it really um, surveys what is happening in the country. So it uses those typical epidemiological concepts of who plays time in person and has developed a whole range of um, epidemiological tools and provides multiple epidemiological reports either on a daily or weekly basis um, or even a monthly basis to look at what is happening in our country with regard to um, the numbers of people that are being infected as well as hospital data that's quite closely linked to that. So the leading data is the, the daily case numbers. And then, of course, the lag is those those individuals who end up in our hospitals and those who die. So the NICD provides critical reports around uh, hospital-related data about who is being admitted and the, and the numbers, as well as the outcomes of those um, hospitalizations and, in particular, death. And also looking at what factor or factors are associated with those particular outcomes. And of course, more recently, as you know, the, the virus um, mutates at particular rates. And so we have multiple lineages and a key finding, um, not necessarily from the NICD, but um, through a consortium identified a lineage that was associated or is associated um, with greater spread. So the institution is now involved in characterizing that particular lineage and other lineages that may be in circulation in South Africa, but also to understand the virology. Um, for example, as you know, the vaccine is going to be introduced in, or one of the vaccines will be introduced into South Africa, but what are the implications um, of this particular mutation in terms of that particular virus and its ability to evade the vaccine, as well as uh, reinfections, as well as diagnostics. So again, a whole range of activities that the NICD is currently involved in, not okay. only on no, but in, uh, with the consortium. All right. Well, excellent. Okay, we're going to take a short ad break. We'll be back after this. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discare Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson. We are joined by Professor Adrian Curran from the NRCD. And uh, we're just going through uh, what the NRCD has been doing in general and specific with regards to the coronavirus um, pandemic that we are living through. Prof, so what are the numbers showing at the, at the moment during this second wave? Um, where, where are we standing uh, currently? Yes, so we're currently what is what is called the the second wave, but more technically, I think people will call us a resurgence. And this resurgence um, has temporarily, if you look at the, the temporal um, events, has started in the Eastern Cape, and that was um, early on in the, in the late 2020s, and that was followed by the Western Cape, and now we're seeing a really remarkable um, surge in cases in terms of um, KwaZulu-Natal and um, Gauteng. If you look at the events in the Eastern Cape, certainly it has reached its peak and has leveled off in terms of the number of cases. However, we still see a high instance in the Western Cape, but a higher instance in um, KZN and um, Gauteng. But again, my sense is when I look at the data, 
Um, although there are a large number of, of cases that have occurred, and in fact, this has outstripped the initial peak of the first um, surge, it certainly there is good evidence, I think, to show that we've certainly reached the peak um, in Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal as well, and we'll probably see declines in the numbers. But still remember that those are certainly still substantial numbers of, of cases that are being infected. And Sorry, Bob, we, can you just repeat that? Repeat that again. That that you think that Gauteng has seen its peak, or we it's like have it seen reached, it? Yeah, it is probably has reached its peak, and I think we're starting to see um, declines. But remember, we're still seeing still large numbers of cases, and I think the same applies to KwaZulu Natal. Um, it certainly has reached its peak, and we're certainly seeing declines. And those declines may, I hope, um, be be rapid. Remember, we're seeing these particular cases. We can still see that. Um, this will follow through um, in terms of what are called the, the late um, indicators, such as hospitalizations and deaths. We'll still certainly see high numbers um, there. But certainly it's a good thing that we've at least reached the, the, the peak. Okay. Well, and why, why was this resurgence or, se- or second wave much worse? Well, or was it worse? And why, if so, why was it worse than, than the first wave? Yeah, so as I said, the, the numbers were certainly the testing numbers were very different compared to the first um, surge, as well as the hospitalizations and, and deaths. The main, well, one of the main reasons for that, we understand, is that, and you've seen this in the UK, is that, in fact, we've seen a lineage um, that had multiple mutations. And the effect, we think, of these mutations, in particular some of those particular mutations, is that it allowed the virus um, to be transmitted more readily uh, between individuals. And as you know, we, we spoke very often in that first um, surge, the so-called R value, the reproductive number, and the effective reproductive number. That is the number of um, susceptible individuals that would be infected by an infected individual. And we normally set that, well, not normally, we set that at about two to three individuals, susceptible individuals versus one infected individual. And it's thought that, that this lineage um, and a variation of this lineage allowed for that R value to increase by about 50 to 70%. And so it's thought that because of that change, um, that we then saw a very rapid increase um, in the numbers of cases. But also recall that um, we, were le- we were also in what is called level one. That's the lowest um, risk uh, mitigation level that we had. That allowed again for larger numbers of people to come into contact with each other. We're also doing that period of, I suppose, the, the December holidays, which again allowed for a greater movement of people. And so I think it's that volatility possibly of a virus that had changed in terms of its um, transmissibility, especially starting off in the Eastern Cape, Cosmo and the Western Cape, but also larger numbers of people um, within particular areas, as well as a decrease of compliance. In other words, um, we probably had larger super spreader events. You noticed that the, the, the president talked about funerals and super spreader events. And we also had the rage events. So we had this volatile mix of numbers of people come into contact with each other, uh, not adhering to the non-pharmaceutical interventions, as well as the fact that um, we had this particular 
um, virus that had actually become more transmissible. So I think all those factors has probably resulted in what we observed um, in this particular surge. And do you have any idea how, um, for where, now that you said we have hopefully reached our peak, how long does it take to settle based on or to go down based on our previous, uh, on the first wave or the initial incident? Yes. Weeks think, or months? We don't know. Um, I hopefully weeks and, and less weeks than I think we saw in the first surge. But I think it comes back to the point, as you know, we did go back to a level three. So that probably has contributed um, to the fact that we're seeing, I hope, um, a steep rise and, and, and decline. So I'm, I'm hoping in the next few weeks as well or less um, to see a decline in those cases. But again, remember, uh, it's going to be reliant on the fact that we only have non-pharmaceutical interventions currently as our main way in which we can control transmission. Certainly the vaccine will be introduced, but remember the vaccine is going to be introduced um, in phases. And so we, we will not necessarily see an absence of, of cases at, at all. Um, we will still see continued um, transmission until that point is reached where um, we actually have what is called herd immunity, but that, that's going to take a while. So we may well okay. still see clusters, surges um, occurring, I'm afraid. Okay, we're going to take a short ad break. We'll be back after this. Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Discam, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to Discam Medical Monday. I'm your host, Dean Gerson, and we're speaking to Professor Adrian Perrin from the NRCD, and we're just talking about um, the second wave and hopefully that we have peaked. Um, Prof, so you said we're going to see uh, um, maybe small pockets of resurgences. Is there such a thing as a third wave or a fourth wave? Or are we going to keep on going through this? Yes, most likely. I think, um, as you know, as I said, we don't have a vaccine. We have not, despite the fact that we are seeing the different surges, this is our, our second surge, it's likely that we will see additional surges um, coming along because we've not really reached what we call herd immunity. I know that um, we have over a million persons that have tested um, positive for the the virus. We know that not everyone has been tested. So we have a very high positivity rate. I think it's about, it was in the 30%. It's come down to about um, 20, 23% now. But we're not testing enough, so we don't really get have a good sense of the total numbers that are likely to be infected. And also remember that um, this infection is transmitted asymptomatically. In other words, people become infected are, and are able to transmit. So, yes, I think we will see, as we did see in that um, first surge, that we have levels of transmission occurring um, and that we will therefore likely, um, if we allow um, people to come into contact with each other in larger numbers, have super spreader events, then we definitely are going to see um, clusters and, and surges, I'm afraid, yes. Okay. So um, when, will, when will we reach herd immunity and um, without a vaccine, and when will we reach herd, herd immunity with a vaccine? Yes. Yeah, so um, if we just relied on continuous infections occurring, then we get to be here for a while in terms of reaching herd immunity. I think it will really take a while. Um, I think that some... You know, we are conducting what is called surveillance, serological surveillance. In other words, 
we're looking at the numbers of people that have become infected who have produced antibodies. And that's the, the basis of our serological surveys. These surveys have been conducted in various countries. And in South Africa, there are uh, what we call systematic surveillance occurring at the moment. We don't really have the numbers there. We know, for example, in the Western Cape, where they have collected um, antibody data from antenatal survey settings in HIV clinics, that it was about 20% or thereabouts. For herd immunity, it's thought that uh, we need to reach about um, 60 to 80% of our, at least the adult population, um, should um, have antibodies present in order to really limit um, transmission. So you can see that if we simply uh, do not have a vaccine, that's going to take us a while to reach that particular number. So if we had a vaccine, we could certainly reach and reach those numbers uh, fairly quickly. By quickly, I don't necessarily mean months. It could be a year or a bit longer to reach those numbers. Then we would have herd immunity and therefore reach that particular point, um, I think, where uh, we could be relatively safe in terms of, of transmissions. But again, remember that this has to be reached worldwide, in other words, um, to really ensure that um, transmission actually stops. So it's, it's a okay. quite a full order. Do we know that those, pe- those people who have been infected, um, well, we, we can maybe put them in the group as having been infected so then we can get herd immunity because they've been infected. Um, I know some pa- people lose antibodies. Um, can you get infected a second time or um, will they lose antibodies um, and then they'll fall out of that group and making it less likely to achieve herd immunity? Or we yeah, don't so, know. Yeah, it's a difficult, it's a complex question. So we know that antibody responses appear to be a major contributor to protection against infection. But as you quite rightly mentioned, that response um, has a spectrum. In other words, people who had Mild infections may not necessarily have um, immunity for a particular period of time of, let's say, less than a year. The other complication, of course, is that we have this uh, new lineage in circulation, and we really need to understand what are the antibody responses. So you may have been infected by a particular lineage, but because this new lineage is in circulation, the antibody responses uh, may not necessarily be protective. So that makes it very difficult to know what it is about your about the herd immunity. So it's not that straightforward, and I think that's the big concern as well when we consider the vaccine as well that we're going to introduce into South Africa, is whether or not that vaccine is going to be as effective as in the pre-lineage or the, the, the current lineage that is in circulation, and would it be protective, in other words. We know that we can manipulate vaccines, and so, but those, those are not vaccines that we're going to be receiving in South Africa. So I, th- I think it's a complicated um, picture. So, and that's okay. the concern that we will see uh, larger rates of, of so-called reinfection, um, for example. Okay, so let's talk uh, about the vaccines at the moment. I don't, obviously, you know, you're going to. Last week, we uh, spoke to Dr. Martin Davis about. And so-called anti-vaxxers or people who are against the vaccine and uh, all the negative attention. And uh, so we're not going to speak, we're not going to speak about the safety of the vaccine and whether you should have it or not. Um, um, but uh, which vaccine will we be receiving in South Africa? We're going to, um, and will that cover all that, the strains 
better, yeah. Yeah, so my understanding is that we're going to receive the, the AstraZeneca um, vaccine. This is the one that was developed in, in Oxford and then, take, uh, if you like, uh, managed through AstraZeneca. And this is a, a vaccine that has a backbone, an adenovirus backbone, with part of the um, COVID-19 virus inserted into it. And it's focused, the, that particular insert looks at the uh, receptor binding domain of the virus. And the receptor binding domain binds to the ACE2 um, receptor. The concern, obviously, with that particular vaccine is that when we look at this lineage, that there are some key mutations um, that will result possibly in, and I think there is some evidence, reduced um, efficacy. And so I think that that is one of the concerns that we, we do have about the AstraZeneca um, vaccine. And so there are ongoing um, experiments currently trying to understand whether or not um, those particular mutations that we are seeing in this lineage will lead to a reduced efficacy by looking at various what we call serological panels. This is from those individuals who have been um, vaccinated with using the AstraZeneca vaccine, whether or not um, they are still able to neutralize this particular vaccine, uh, a vaccine strain, as well as um, those individuals who've been infected with other circulating, um, collecting their particular plasma and then looking against this new lineage to see whether or not um, there is um, a level of, of, of protection. Because the protection may not always reside, even though there are mutations, it may not um, disappear completely, but it may work at, at a lower level, for example. And there may be other factors. For example, as you know, the immune system is not only made of, of an antibody response, there are also so-called T-cell responses, which are also um, really critical. So it's that combination to give us a sense whether or not um, this is required. I want to point out that with regard to coronavirus um, immunity, this is not necessarily unique. We've seen this. Um, as you know, coronavirus has also caused the common cold. And we do note that um, there are reinfections, and the reinfections are not simply because of a waning immunity, as we discussed earlier, but could also be a, as a result of, of mutation. So this is not unique, but it, of course, is, is of concern. I, did, I heard a statement the other day, and maybe you can comment on it. Because the um, you mentioned that the vaccine is based on the protein that virus relies on for cell entry, that if there is a mutation um, on that protein for cell entry, it would more likely be a weaker version of the virus, and so we wouldn't have to be that worried because a mutated version would mean that the virus uh, cannot get into the cell as easily um, if there's a mutation on that protein. I don't know if I phrased that uh, correctly, but they, they chose a clever part of the virus to um, to base the vaccine on because it's a cell entry protein. Um, is there any truth in that statement? Yes, I, think we, I do think we need to be cautious. So there is a mutation that increases transmissibility. So that's the so-called 501 uh, mutation. So the concern there is not around neutralization there. I think the concern is where you have a change in the binding area, you're quite right, but you can't neutralize um, that particular area because of the, the, the mutation. So, in fact, um, that virus then will bind and you will not be protected against infection 
and, and disease. So I think that that is the concern. But you're right, the about attenuation of viruses. So it's thought that viruses um, do adapt to the host and, in fact, become less um, pathogenic, in other words, and, and become weaker. So they can be what is called attenuation of virus, and that's seen in, in many viruses. But you can also see the obverse of that. In fact, um, those mutations can lead to uh, more severe outcomes and, and therefore difficult to, um, um, to manage. So Ebola is a, a good example of that. It hasn't adapted um, in a sense, and, and so we still see severe disease. Zika virus is another good example, um, where, in fact, uh, mutations have led to, to poorer outcomes. So I think we just need to be cautious around that. So I think the general principle is that is adaptation by viruses and that they become attenuated, like the cold viruses that are caused by coronaviruses, but you can have the, the opposite effect as well. Okay, and what about um, the Pfizer vaccine, that uh, mRNA vaccine? Will we have the same problems um, with that vaccine? Yes, so in, in fact, yes, you could have, you will have the same um, similar problems, although I think they've claimed that that is not the case. Um, however, the mRNA viruses, which is the Pfizer virus and the Moderna virus, um, you, in terms of manipulating or changing the, the mRNA becomes a bit more easier than it is for the, the AstraZeneca um, virus. But it, yes, so I think there is a great interest by all these vaccine manufacturers, as to, especially if they've chosen that receptor binding domain, uh, whether or not um, they're going to get responses that are less efficacious than without the, the, the mutation. Um, are the antibodies the same made by both vaccines? Is it the exact same antibody? Not necessarily. There may be subtle variations around that. Um, so you raise an important point. So if you look at um, the efficacy data that we've seen, um, these are quite different. I, I think many of us were surprised that the mRNA viruses were so efficient um, in that you know, the efficacy was in the 90s. Whereas when you looked at the AstraZeneca, um, in fact, the efficacy there, the overall efficacy was, was 70%. One would have thought that it would be the other way around. And um, so, yes, I think the antibody responses are different. And in fact, there's um, no standardized measurements to compare, you know, the Pfizer, the Moderna, the AstraZeneca and the other viruses um, because they're using different methodologies. And um, so I think, although I'm talking about the differences in efficacy, it's probably based on, on differences uh, of, of methodology as well. So I think it'd be very useful um, to have a single system where you can then compare the, the different viruses in terms of, of its potency. I think that will be key. Okay. And, and would it be possible for someone to get both vaccines? Or would it be um, detrimental to get both vaccines if you first got the AstraZeneca and then um, got the uh, Pfizer vaccine afterwards. Yeah, so this is a, a controversial um, area. I think currently the recommendation is because of the design of these particular um, vaccines that, in fact, you, you keep two, um, one um, regimen. In other words, if you started off with the AstraZeneca, that you then keep on with that. I think there is some discussion um, around whether or not you can do a mix and match, but I think that will require its own particular research um, in order to, to try and answer that. One would have thought, theoretically, that um, it should not 
make a difference and in terms of ult- ultimately protecting um, individuals. But again, I think that that really needs to to be demonstrated, given that these uh, vaccines were designed in, in a specific way to answer specific um, questions. I would okay. like to um, yes, yes. If I may just add one uh, key point here. So the, the vaccines that have been developed, we don't know much about whether or not they all protect against transmission. They protect certainly against disease. So again, if you're coming back to herd immunity, well, that's a, a very critical and important consideration that this um, certainly uh, prevents um, severe disease, for example, but we don't know whether a person that's infected will um, then transmit virus. Okay. Okay, very good. Um, do we know, um, uh, do you, or do you know in, anything about the, the vaccine rollout? Um, we, we've been told that we're going to get a million vaccines this month for healthcare, for healthcare workers. Um, and then, uh, later on, um, it's going to be rolled out, uh, to, um, elderly or those at, at risk. Um, do we know uh, anything concrete about, uh, the vaccine or is it up in, up in there? I think we, I have not seen the, the finalized plans. I'm sure that they will be presented, but you're right. It's really important to know that. And you're quite right to, to highlight the fact that, um, this can be a staged process in terms of, for example, protecting the healthcare workers and then or frontline workers and then emergency, um, workers and then obviously the more vulnerable in our, our society and then the general adult um, population. So it's going to be a phased rollout. Uh, but I'm not sure of the exact plans and, and when this is, is actually okay. going to happen. I believe February is the, is the start date for that. Okay. Do we know how long after getting the vaccine one would be immune? Yeah, so that's the other very important question. We don't know that yet. So I assume that um, vaccines are, are, if you like, should be more potent and effective than um, natural infections very often. So we would hope that um, the immunity may well last longer than what we're currently seeing for natural infections. So to date, I think natural infections have shown immunity or the longevity of, of the immunity at least up to eight months. Um, we would like to think that that vaccine may produce that for a longer period of time. We know for other coronaviruses that it is um, can vary between two to three years, if not longer. So I'm hoping that we would like to see a longer uh, level of, of immunity, but that still needs to be uh, quite right, and still the evidence for that still needs to be produced. Okay, so it's not that you can go for your vaccine today and go out uh, in public tomorrow without uh, without a mask on. Absolutely, I, I think you raise a very important point that the public need to be I think aware. There's probably a, yeah, I think there's a, probably a perception that you um, that you can. <laughs> Absolutely. So I think even though the vaccine will be rolled out. Um, we still need to emphasize those key points around, you know, the physical distancing, the wearing of masks, hand hygiene. Yes. I'm afraid are going to be with us um, for a, a fairly length of time. Okay. And uh, in, with the AstraZeneca vaccine, it's a single dose and the Pfizer vaccine, it's uh, two doses. Is there, can you explain to us why, why the need for two doses? Yes, I think the AstraZeneca is two doses as well, but we can confirm. Is it both two doses? Yeah. Yeah, both two doses, yeah. So I think the, it's, if you like, it, uh, the first dose is really to initiate, um, immune responses. And then the second dose is really to, um, boost and enhance and sustain, um, uh, immunity. 
So I think that's, you know, as you know, there was a great deal of controversy in the UK um, when they, for public health reasons, decided only to give one dose and to give the, a dose at a later point. There's some rationale behind that. So even though you have um, received a single dose, it's not as if by, you know, if you had to be injected, let's say, um, three months later, that your immunity has disappeared. I think it was just a matter of um, enhancing that uh, that immune response. Um, if you delay that too long, in other words, and people forget, obviously, or don't want to come back for that second dose, um, that, that you could run in, into, to, into problems. So I think that's why I think in the UK that that was the controversy is that they've changed the, the, the timing of that second dose. If people lose interest or can't remember when up to come back, that that was going to be an important consideration for that second dose. Okay, okay we're going to take our final ad break. We'll be back shortly. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. This is Medical Monday brought to you with compliments of Dischem, pharmacists who care. Welcome back to our final few minutes of uh, Dischem Medical Monday. The time is flown. We've been speaking to Professor Adrian Perrin, Executive Director of the NRCD. Prof, do you want to give us some hope, some optimism? Um, a final, a final message. I know all the news is, um, doom and gloom. And I'm so excited that you said we've kind of, it's, you're the first person I've heard from that we've kind of, uh, hopefully hit our peak in Gauteng. Not that it means much at this stage, but at least, you know, that it is some good news. You know, I, I well, it's, it's good news in, in some ways. I, I hope that, um, having reached that peak, um, our systems, um, will be able to to cope because I think that that's really critical. Hi FM, your station of choice since two thousand and eight. 